Section 9. The Roosevelt-Randan Scientific Expedition and the Telegraph Line Commission. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Roosevelt-Randan Scientific Expedition and the Telegraph Line Commission by Candido Mariano da Silva Randan. Translation by Richard George Reedy and Edwin Douglas Murray. Lecture 2, Part 3 Now, relieved of our apprehensions as to the fate of the shipwrecked crew, we could listen to Mr. Kermit's narrative. He told us that, attempting to reconnoitre the channel, he found his canoe suddenly caught by the current and carried over the fall which was there, and over a second one which followed, thus rushing along from fall to fall, impossible to be steered, the canoe had finally become filled with water and submerged. Thus there was a second fall, we directed our steps towards it, and decided to examine same carefully. On arriving there, all our searching in the hopes of finding something to save was fruitless. On the waters and along the banks of the river we did not see the slightest trace of the wreck which had occurred but a few moments previously. Lieutenant Lyra and I commenced to study the portage road, which was to connect the second fall to the first. Mr. Kermit continued his search along the bank downstream. After some time, and on the road which we were following, we met the canoe man, Hoeo, who had finally managed to cross the river. He told us that Mr. Kermit, after examining the fall, had ordered the descent by the channel, and, taking no notice of the information given to him that the passage was impracticable, he insisted on his purpose and repeated the order. In view of this, the canoe man had thought himself obliged to obey, although he well knew that this was most rash. The canoe, impelled by the current and unable to stand up against it, made water and was flooded. Hoeo, who was in charge of the steering, in his attempt to save it, jumped into the river and tried to hold it by the hawser which was fixed to the bow. All his efforts were, however, in vain. The canoe, carried away by the racing torrent, capsized. After this he had seen it drifting down the river, bottom upwards, and sitting on same were Mr. Kermit and Simplicio. This narrative left us disconsolate. Poor Simplicio had not saved himself either with Hoeo or with Mr. Kermit. There was only one hope left, and that was the result of the search which was being made below the last fall. But this was very uncertain. Still, we sent Hoeo to help Mr. Kermit. Unfortunately, the moment arrived when it was impossible to deceive ourselves. Simplicio was drowned. This sad certainty broke upon the members of the expedition as a painful mishap in which everyone shared. Certainly, no one commences an enterprise of the kind in which we were engaged, without having previously become acquainted with the idea of the danger which same may offer, and of the innumerous occasions in which one has to face death. It was not, therefore, its unforeseen arrival which shocked us, but it was the pain of having lost a companion to whom we were attached, in brotherly affection, by the communion of past work, and of the privations and hopes tried in the realization of an object, 
which now belong to all our wishes and our hearts. Wishing to give expression to these sentiments, we perpetuated the name of the unfortunate Simplicio at this fall, and on the kilometer mark raised in the camp, we placed the following inscription. In these rapids, poor Simplicio met his death. The sorrow and preoccupation which such an accident had left in us did not succeed, however, in weakening our efforts. The work of portaging the canoes around the fall by a road of 520 meters in extension terminated in time to enable us to commence the voyage at seven o'clock on the following morning, the 16th of March, and to proceed with the topographical survey by the process known as movable sightings, as we had not a canoe sufficiently light to work with a sighting rod. In this way we were enabled to make 1.612 meters, a new waterfall now made us stop and obliged us to explore and open up another portage road about 910 meters in length. Once this service was arranged and whilst the canoe men were transporting the cargo from the upper part of the fall to the lower level where we established our twelfth encampment, I took my gun and interned myself in the wood to find some game and some tokery nuts, castanhas tokery. As usual, I was accompanied by one of my dogs. First I went in a westerly direction climbing a hill behind the camp. I then turned to the north, arriving again at the bank of the river, which course I accompanied downstream. Having walked about 1,500 meters, I arrived at the point where the waters divided themselves between the principal bed and a small canal, forming in this way a fair-sized island. I was on the side of the canal, which I was accompanying, when suddenly I heard in front of me the characteristic sounds of the voice of the coeta, the biggest of the monkeys of the Mato Grosso and Amazon forests. It was good game and convenient to bring it down. With a thousand precautions to avoid frightening it, crouching between the tufts of the vegetation, I advanced in the direction of the sounds, closely examining the branches of the trees. All of a sudden, my dog Lobo, who had gone ahead of me, broke the solitude with yelpings of pain. It was evident that he had just been attacked and was wounded, most certainly by a jaguar or a peccary, I thought. But almost immediately I heard other voices. These were well known to me. They were short exclamations, energetic, and repeated in a kind of chorus, with a certain cadence peculiar to Indians, who, when they are ready for the fight, commence the attack on the enemy. My dog Lobo had already come to my side. The Indians had chased him, and for the second time had wounded him with an arrow. My first move was to assist the dog. I fired one of the barrels of my gun. I waited a few moments, and, as it appeared to me that the pursuit was continuing, for I only heard voices and could not see the Indians, I therefore fired the other barrel. Afterwards I reflected that it would be imprudent to persist in helping the animal. I could not do this without exposing myself to be seen by the Indians, and this might give occasion for a struggle between them and myself. I decided, therefore, to return to the camp, but before arriving there I already repented having abandoned my poor Lobo, and also not having attempted to get close up to the Indians. 
On arriving at the camp, bad news awaited me. Whilst the party were occupied in passing the canoe Arapuana, a name we had given to same when we launched it on the river two days previously, the hawser which served to sustain same and direct it in the current had broken, and the canoe had disappeared in the surf. But what most worried me were the Indians and my poor wounded and abandoned dog. I related what had happened to Mr. Roosevelt and our other companions, and invited Lieutenant Lyra and Mr. Kermit to return to that place with me, taking axes and beads. If we should not meet the Indians, we would leave these presents at a place where they could be easily discovered. This would reveal to them the intentions of those who had left them there. We set out, therefore, taking with us the Parisi Indian Antonio, who formed part of the expeditionary column. We arrived without any difficulty at the place where the Indians had been. It was at the brink of the channel to which I referred above. There we came across a long rod, at the end of which was tied a bequite, or small basket, full of the entrails of game. This was evidently some fishing implement, and the mode of using it was to merge same into the water to attract and collect the fish. These would follow the bait as the operator lifted it up slowly until they could be seen by another fisherman armed with bow and arrows. They would then be shot and easily caught. We procured other traces, but could only detect the trail of the fugitives, which followed in the direction of the Igapo, existing a little further on. We, however, did not cross same, and returned to the fishing place where we left our presence by the side of the road. Guided by the bloodstains of Lobo, we found him dead, fallen on the road leading to the camp, three hundred meters away from the point where he had been attacked. Two arrows had struck him, one traversing his stomach below his heart, the other had torn away the muscle of his right leg. We found the point of the first arrow, a piece of bamboo in the form of a barbed lance, and from which we verified that these Indians did not belong to the Nambiquara nation. We thus confirmed the supposition which had been suggested to us by the tree which had been cut with a stone axe, that the river Duvida, from a certain point, was inhabited by a new tribe of Indians, with regard to which we possessed no information. We returned to the camp. The wreck of the canoe Aripuana left us seriously embarrassed. At this place there was no wood which could be used for building a new canoe, and the four which still remained were insufficient for the transportation of the members of the expedition and the baggage. The alternative of making a raft was remembered and rejected. At last we adopted the decision of loading the canoes with the baggage, and in which, besides the men strictly necessary for the service of the navigation, Mr. Roosevelt and Dr. Cajazera would embark. We, in all thirteen persons, would go by land following the course of the river, and during the journey would take the necessary precautions to avoid that the two parts of the expedition should deviate too much one from the other. So we advanced until we found some wood which might serve to build the canoes which we required. 
While Mr. Roosevelt did not entirely agree to this plan, it appeared to him to be very risky whilst we were traversing the zone inhabited by unknown Indians. It was in this way that we proceeded on the 17th, having previously joined the two canoes together, which up to then had been navigating separately, the surveying canoe and that belonging to Mr. Roosevelt, so as to form a kind of ferry analogous to that formed by the other two. During this journey we met a first waterfall with a length of 312 meters, to which we gave the name of Boa Passagem, and then a second fall, Sete Ilhas, which necessitated a portage road of 408 meters. Immediately below same, we came across on the left bank a river with a width of 21 meters, running with an average velocity of 60 centimeters per second, and discharging its waters from a mouth the traverse section of which gave an area of 339.760 square centimeters. The volume of water furnished per second corresponded to 20.385 liters. I gave the name of Kermit to this river in honor of Mr. Roosevelt. The survey gave 6.460 meters in relation to our previous camp, and therefore 123.230, counting from the zero stake at the bridge belonging to the telegraph line. Up to this point, it was still possible to give way to the existing doubts in the mind of Mr. Roosevelt and of some of the other members of the expedition relative to the importance of the river which we had been exploring since the 27th of February. But now there was no motive whatever for hesitation, which for so long had held our judgment in suspense and divided our opinions, inasmuch as all of them arose from the hypothesis which we saw could not be verified, namely that the river Duvida was a simple affluent of the Gui Parana. And that which peremptorily excluded this hypothesis was the fact that the river did not possess such a big tributary as that which we had just discovered. The Gui was well known, and all of us of the Telegraph Lines Commission knew that this river had not, on its right bank, any feeder comparable in size and volume of water to that which we were navigating. It was therefore recognized that the Duvida was the principal collector of a great hydrographical basin. It was certainly my opinion for some time back that this river flowed direct into the Madeira, but even if it flowed into the Tapajos or into the Amazon, this could in no way affect its importance to bring it down to the level of some tributary or other of secondary order. The condition on which depended the compliance of the resolution taken by our government and communicated to me by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, namely to perpetrate in the map of Brazil the memory of the journey of Mr. Roosevelt's geographical discoveries by adopting his name to designate the river explored, was therefore carried out and complied with. Consequently, on the morning of the 18th, before we left our 13th camp, I issued an order of the day, making known to the Brazilian and American commissions that from that day onward the river which we had since 1909 called Duvida would henceforth be known as the Roosevelt. 
This ceremony, with which we gave execution to the wish of the government of our country, viz. to render once again homage to the United States of America in the person of its ex-president, took place with all the solemnity in keeping with the place and the conditions under which we were. On the same occasion we inaugurated at the mouth of the recently discovered tributary a wooden mark with the inscription Rio Kermit, Besides the number of kilometers, the number of the camp, the initials of the expedition, the value of the geographical coordinates which we found to be latitude south 11 degrees 27 minutes 20 seconds, longitude of Rio 17 degrees 17 minutes 2 seconds. After this ceremony we commenced our march once again, divided into two parties, one going by the river on the two ferries, and the other by land. The ground, which since we left the fall of Boapesagem, showed that its formation was of a diabase rock, now commenced from the mouth of the river Kermit to be granite. At first this was the subject which most occupied our minds. As usual we would pick up samples of stones here and there, destined to be afterwards examined and classified by Dr. Eusebio Paulo de Oliveira, the geologist of the Brazilian Commission. But soon afterwards we commenced to find recent signs of Indians, First, a tapiri, made according to the style used by the Yurumis and Pauetes tribes of the Gui Paraná. Then, three huts close together, small and low, and arch-shaped, entirely covered and closed by palm leaves. Each one possessed but one opening or door, very small in size, which was disguised underneath the leaves of the roof, purposely left hanging over it. As was to be expected, from such a mode of construction, the interior of these huts was completely dark. The most interesting feature, however, was the arrangement of the lot. Of the three huts, two were placed parallel to one another and slanting. The third one was perpendicular to these, resting itself laterally at the extremity of one and leaning on the other, almost at the commencement of its inner wall. In this way, if they were to be attacked from one side or another, one at least would be covered by the other two, and in this way, being invisible to the assailants, could serve as a refuge for the women and children. From the examination of all these things, however, what most interested me was the indication that the Indians of the River Roosevelt were in touch with the tribes of the Gui Paraná, because this would facilitate in the future my work of reaching, pacifying, and protecting them. We continued our march, and after having traveled 5.280 meters, counted from the mouth of the Kermit, found a second river which flows into the Roosevelt from the right side by a waterfall two meters in height and thirty in width. We could only make a small reconnaissance of this new tributary along its bank, as it was necessary to attend to the wish of the chief of the American Commission relative to accelerating our voyage. However, seeing it descend from southeast in northwesterly direction, we presumed it corresponded to the headwaters designated by us on the highland, by the name of Marciano Avila. We still descended along the River Roosevelt another 3.060 meters, 
at the end of which a new waterfall forced us to transport our baggage by a portage road of six hundred and forty meters in length we decided to install our fourteenth camp here to which we gave the name of duas canoas in view of having discovered two araputangas of good size from which we were to obtain the craft which we required having commenced the building of same on the nineteenth the two canoes called esbelta and chanfrada were launched on the afternoon of the twenty-first and these permitted us to recommence our work of reconnaissance on the following morning the topographical survey by fixed staves was also re-established using as before the florier's telemeter we thus traversed nine point nine seven zero meters crossing first with little trouble a waterfall formed by the outcrop of porphyritic quartz and arriving afterwards at another one much larger composed of two walls of diabase which had to be got round by a portage road of eight hundred and fifty meters the latter we named cachoeira da felicidad and there we established our fifteenth camp having pitched our tents mr roosevelt asked me for a chat as he wished to give me his opinion as to how we should conduct the work of the expedition his view was that the chiefs of undertakings of certain importance should not occupy themselves with the details of the work to be carried out but only with the determining of the principal points and even this only to an extent necessary to characterize it in its general lines opening up and clearing the way for the specialists who would not be long in coming up and filling in the details of same in this way he was inclined to think that it would be convenient to again adopt the rapid survey i replied that we were there to accompany him and take him across the wilderness and that therefore we would execute the services in accordance with his wishes we would employ our greatest efforts to give him the satisfaction of seeing reduced to a possible minimum the time which he had still to spend on this expedition for this reason the topographical survey proceeded without our being able to obtain all the benefit of the technical resources which we had at our disposal and with which we had carried out a sufficiently exact and correct work we left the felicidad waterfall at seven o'clock in the morning of the twenty-third but right ahead of us we had to suspend our march because the river forming rapids was enclosed in a canyon opened through a rock of quartzite which runs from the right bank to the left from southeast to northeast on all sides could be seen huge boulders hurled one over the other by the tearing force of the current and although the aspect was very picturesque it increased however the difficulty of discovering the canal by which the unloaded canoes could be passed the first reconnaissance made along the left bank gave us no other result beyond the finding of fresh signs of indians we therefore passed over to the right bank and there we found the convenient canal the baggage was transported by land over a distance of one point zero nine six meters and the work only terminated in the afternoon at almost four o'clock in spite of this we proceeded on our journey we passed by a sharp pointed rock of diabase two meters above the level of the river and we established our sixteenth camp at a place where the dim murmur of the waters 
rushing between the rocks, could be heard. On this day, when we worked from seven o'clock in the morning until about five o'clock in the afternoon, we did not succeed in advancing more than 12.600 meters. Were it not for the obstacles we had encountered, we would have covered more than 38 kilometers in eight hours alone, for the survey was going at the rate of 81 meters per second. On the dawn of the 24th, after having chased, with no result, a tapir, which had made its appearance in the river, for this reason we named our 16th camp Anta Perdida, Lost Tapir, we got into our canoes and went to reconnoitre the rapids which announced themselves by the roar of the fall. Thirty-three minutes afterwards we arrived close by and commenced to explore it from the right side by land. We walked the length of its course, more than one kilometre, at the end of which there exists an enormous basin, four hundred metres in length. However, we convinced ourselves that it would be impossible to descend the canoes over it, as the waters rush impetuously over the bed of diabase, which is here and there cut in terraces, forming a series of falls. Lieutenant Lira, Mr. Kermit, the canoe-man Antonio Correa, and myself passed over to the other bank to see whether we would be more fortunate there. We had not advanced very far with the new reconnaissance when we were surprised at seeing another river which flowed into the Roosevelt with a width of forty meters and a much larger volume of water than any of the other tributaries previously noted. Although we could not go further ahead with our exploration, we were quite satisfied with the work done, because we discovered a canal through which we could pass the smaller canoes. The others would be dragged overland. However, I did not wish to deviate from the recently discovered river before choosing the name most appropriate to designate it, taking into consideration the greatness of its waters, the poetical and charming aspect of its banks and bar, as also the richness of its lands, most adequate to the cultivation of sugar-cane, coffee, and all kinds of cereals. By the side of many Brazil nut-trees, and numbers of specimens of Hevia brasiliensis, rubber, we saw the Uacari palms, the water sepos lianas, and many other varieties of vegetation which attest to the excellence of the soil where they grow and flourish. This was unquestionably the most remarkable and the most important of all the geographical discoveries which we had made since the 27th of February, and, as it belonged to the territory of Mato Grosso, only the name of some person to whom the gratitude of Mato Grosso was due, owing to the love and dedication with which he had served his people and his country, could merit being remembered to receive the homage of remaining to commemorate same in it. Under these conditions, who would not immediately remember the eminently pleasing figure, dear to all Brazilians, and to the hearts of the sons of Mato Grosso, of the soldier who gave them the strength of his arm on the sad occasion of the Paraguayan invasion, the engineer who lent the concourse of his technical knowledge in the study of the marshland region of the rivers Negro, Tacuco, and Aquiduana, and of the writer who best knew how to evoke the ephemeral greatness of the near past of Villa Bella 
and depict same, enhancing the beauty and grandeur of those lands, and of those skies in which he saw, collected, and cultivated lovingly the sweet flower of the soul of the forest, which opened out and expanded in the charms of Innocentia. I could not therefore hesitate. I cut out the bark of a tree full of sap and life, and in its lasting wood we cut the following inscription. Rio Tone, in front of the waterfall of the same name, homage of the Roosevelt Randan expedition at 156.280 meters from Paso Dalinha Telegrafica, March 24, 1914. End of section 9